The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So we're going to talk about the book of Esther this morning. Esther is in the same time period as we studied last week with Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah started with the return. Remember, there were three returns. Started with the return of Zerubbabel and a group of people to go back and start laying the foundation of the temple, start rebuilding the temple. And then you remember that was under uh, the decree of Cyrus that allowed them to go back, and then Darius the king was the one who was reigning over Persia when the temple was completed. And then fast forward you know, many years, and it was when Ezra and then later Nehemiah came back, and that was under the Persian king Artaxerxes. Esther fits in between those those, in between Zerubbabel and those folks going back, and then in between, and then on the other end, Ezra and Nehemiah. So there was a king in between there called Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as he's referred to in Esther, that, as we all know, Esther married and became the queen of, and that happens in between Zerubbabel and then Ezra and Nehemiah on the end. Now, Esther is a very delightful and beloved and well-known book, and I would like to start uh, this overview of it by you telling me the story of Esther. Not one person telling me at all, but taking turns. So somebody tell me about the story of Esther. How does it begin? And then we're going to go through it together. Okay, the king has a, a big banquet. It's believed that that banquet is them preparing to go to war with Greece, you know, making their plans to go to war with Greece. But nevertheless, a massive banquet. What else? Elsie? And this will take way too long. Everybody raises their hand, so just you go, go. And she didn't come, okay? Yep, that's right. Come on, don't be bashful. Queen Vashti is deposed. That's right, she's out. Beauty contest, and what happens? Esther wins. Esther wins the beauty contest. She becomes the queen of one of the largest empires ever known to humankind. She doesn't tell. She doesn't tell that she's Jewish. Okay. Okay, so Mordecai is maybe Esther's cousin, maybe uncle, relation at least to her, and it's helped kind of care for her. And he doesn't bow to this high advisor of the king's, and that irritates Haman to no end. Haman plans to do him in. Not just him. I'm just going to get rid of their whole race. Andre says he convinces the king Hey, I'll put some money in the coffers for you if we can just exterminate this rabble of a people that you don't even want in your empire anyways. And the king says, okay. Yeah, so Pat calls out something that we missed together as a group, a very important point. There was an incident earlier where Mordecai was at the gate and he heard, overheard a threat to the king's life and he reported it. The king was delivered, saved as a result, and it was recorded in the annals of Persian history, but there was no official reward given. That's right. Okay, so let's tuck that away for just a second. What happened before that, though, before the king read that? Haman had made his plan. 
You got to do something. Frank's being generous to others. Yeah, just just call it out. What else? What happened next? Okay. Yes, but before that, that's we're gonna go back to that. What happened before though? So to Frank's point, she was afraid. Please fast and pray. She went before the king. The king accepted her, held out the scepter, and what did Esther ask for? A banquet. I'd like to have a banquet. Okay, and that made Mordecai, excuse me, Haman, really proud of himself that he got invited to this exclusive banquet put on by the queen, and he's really happy. But on the way out, what does he see? He sees Mordecai, and it doesn't matter. I can't be happy as long as that dude is alive, right? And so he tells that to his friends. His friends say, hey, let's, we'll just prepare for his execution then since it's coming anyways. Uh, I will put in a, a small detail that's important, especially with the questions Andre was asking before we got started. Haman, when he you know, makes this decision to exterminate the Jewish race, what does he do? How does he decide how, he's gonna, uh, how that's going to play out? He builds a house, but, but he's, he's going to make this plan to give the king lots of money and exterminate the Jewish race, and he's going to do it. How, he's going to pick a date. What date is that? He, he, he casts lots. He casts lots, and he, hey, it's going to be 11 months from now. On this date, we're going to exterminate the Jewish lots, and that becomes important later in the story. Okay, so we're back. We're back. Haman is upset at Mordecai because he was elated, and all of a sudden he's reminded of this enemy of his. So his family members, his friends say, hey, build a gallows, build a stake, let's prepare to exterminate him. And so he feels a little bit better about himself. And, you know, he's so kind of high on himself that he's ready to go to the king and explain his plan. But that night, now we go back to Kathleen and Beverly's point, that night he couldn't sleep. And so he's reading in the annals, and he's, whoa, I totally forgot about this incident. This guy saved my life. He, it's morning time now. He says to his closest people, what, what did we do for this guy? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, really. Wow. we got to do something for this. Haman comes in to announce his plan or to announce the next steps of it, and he says, hey, Haman, what should we do for the man the king wants to honor? Okay, and then what happens? Yeah, yeah, and he thinks it's for him. It turns out for Mordecai, so he leads Mordecai through the town, you know, declaring, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Okay, now he goes back to his friends, family. It's a little bit of a different story this time. Ooh, this guy that you were, he's a Jew. You're, you're not going to be able to stand before him and, Oh, dinner time, right? It's time for, because Esther had had one banquet. At that one banquet, she had said, you know what I want is to have one more banquet. Okay, we'll have one more banquet. And so he doesn't want to go to this banquet, but he's whisked away to this banquet. And at that banquet, that's correct. So King, I'm, not, I'm sorry to even ask you this. I don't want to bother you. If it was just we were sold into slavery, I wouldn't do it. The reality is we're being exterminated. You're being exterminated? What do you mean? Well, it's this guy over here. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and, and so Haman, Haman then makes a faux pas. He makes it even worse. This guy's gone, right? He's gone, and yet the king's edict will stand, right? On the month of Adar, I don't remember the day, on that 11th month away from when he made the edict, they're going to be, uh, you know, attacked. The Jewish people are going to be attacked and destroyed. So what does he do? Makes a counter edict. That's right. Defend themselves and even governmental help. 
if you read closely, that are they're 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 assisted in that. And so, the, the Jews that read this are exhilarated. They celebrate. They defend themselves, and a holiday comes of it called Purim, and that means lots. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And it's a Jewish holiday that was not. Um, specified in the Torah, obviously, since this happened much after, but it is a holiday, one of the main holidays that is still celebrated today. Okay, that's the story. We all know it. We all love it. Um, let me uh, tell you a little bit more about the book. It is a very intriguing book. One thing you may not know is that Esther holds a either extremely elevated or extremely low view in people's op people's opinion of the book. There are people who don't think it should be in the biblical canon. And then there are other folks that think it's on par with the Torah, with the laws of Moses, the writings of Moses. Listen to this quote. The book of Esther presents a delightfully told story, one we just went through and we know of Jewish life in the diaspora or the dispersion. You know, they were exiled, they were scattered among Jews who didn't return, but who settled down and flourished in a foreign land. It tells of a Jewish girl's rise to become queen of Persia and of her intercession to save her people at a time of crisis. It shows things working out well for the Jews beyond their fondest hopes. Strikingly, this book has provoked some of the strongest reactions, both pro and con, of any book of the Bible. It's been denounced by some as secularized, sub-Christian or sub-Jewish on one extreme, and it's been elevated to a status essentially equal to the Torah on the other. Now, don't read ahead if you already have, sorry. Why, why might they think that? Why might people have a negative view of the book? Well, one, there's two reasons. One is because it doesn't ever talk about God in the book. It never mentions his name. There's no talk of prayer. There is some fasting that goes on. No, the temple isn't mentioned. I mean, the very reality is the main characters in the book are not like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, right? These are not folks whose hearts are stirred to return home. These are people who are living in the capital city and staying by all. Uh, you know, viewpoints, well, the perspective seems to be. So as I go on with the quote, negative reactions are primarily because of its lack of mention of God and its essentially secular nature. Finally, as well as its allegedly vindictive spirit and narrow Jewish nationalism. So you remember, they want a second day to, uh, to plunder and to defeat their enemies as well. And they say, hey, what's the deal with that? That seems sub-Christian, as it were. Like, you know, really? You're going you're gonna to go, go back? And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, and I was gone, but Frank taught on Psalms and talked about imprecatory Psalms. So there, uh, I can't reference it because I wasn't here. And I, but, you know, there is that same feeling, you know, in one sense. Here's something that Martin Luther wrote. Martin Luther is well known for his uh, unabashed honesty and being wrong sometimes. Uh, Martin Luther wrote, I'm so hostile to Second Maccabees, which is another, uh, it's a book outside of the canon that uh, the Roman Catholic Church holds as part of their scriptures. Martin Luther, who came out of that, is referring to it as well. I'm so hostile to Second Maccabees and to Esther. He was also uh, upset of one other book. Do y'all remember the other book he didn't like a lot? James, that's right. Uh, to Esther, I wish they didn't exist at all because they Judaize too greatly, have too much pagan impropriety. And then slightly less hostile was Samuel Sandmel, a Jewish scholar, 
who nonetheless stated, if somehow or other the canon were to become open in the 20th century, I would be among those who would vote to exclude it. Now, here's a quote on the total polar opposite, that again, sort of the, the high view of Esther, equating it almost with the books of Moses. And again, I don't know, it's kind of like, you probably shouldn't have favorites among your kids, you know, like everybody's always trying to get on my phone screen, you know, that's, and I have to be cautious, like I just changed it, and oh, when am I going to be on your phone, you know, so you have to be careful, I'm not trying to do that with books of the Bible here, you know, they're all valuable and important, so it's kind of an odd exercise to even talk about, but just to try to share with you, this is a, this is, you know, an interesting, Esther is, I think to most of us, it's just like a delightful story, a really great part of our Bible, you know, you, you love to read it, kids love it, and you may not realize that there's this either like, you know, high or low view of it. Here's the other side of the coin. The book itself is the only one, I'm sorry, I was trying to get through this, Gideon, can you come over three or four chairs for a second? Thank you. The book itself is, is the only one of the Old Testament outside of the Torah to have a second Targum devoted to its exposition. And the number of Midrashim, these are works of the, of the Jewish scholars over the centuries to you know, interpret, exposit, and you know, apply the works of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the only book outside of the Old Testament, outside of the Torah, to have a second Targum. The number of Midrashim and other Jewish commentaries on it exceed those written of any other book in the Old Testament. Its esteem in the Jewish community is often estimated by quoting the saying of the famous Jewish scholar Maimonides that when the prophets and the writings pass away, when the Messiah comes, only Esther and the Torah will remain. Its significance can further be seen in the fact that the second commandment of the Decalogue, which is what, do y'all remember? Don't make idols, that's the second commandment, don't make idols. Uh, so they, you know, it had been seen as in Jewish circles of prohibiting representation of human figure by the time of the Middle Ages, but that prohibition was not applied to the decoration of the scroll of Esther. And we have, you know, amazing examples of Jewish artwork and renditions in illustrating that book, which give, again, eloquent expression to the affectionate regard in which they've held the book. Indeed, the illumination of Esther manuscripts has preserved some of the finest examples of medieval Jewish art so overwhelming in its, is its popularity and acceptance that the tendency on the part of Christian scholars when discussing problems with the book, which we had in the first quote, to quote ex the exceedingly rare occasions when Jewish scholars have questions its canonicity is utterly misleading. So again, here's just a slide, not quotes, but a slide that shows those same things that we just talked about. Um, you know, what's for, why is it such an amazing, but I mean, just amazing deliverance, the beauty of a story. I, I handed out something I'll share in just a second. And then uh, Andre and Denise were just talking about just the Feast of Purim that comes from this, or Purim, as they would say it, is extremely popular. It's one of their most enjoyable, fun, celebrated, regarded feasts, and it comes from this book. And then against it, again, no mention of the covenants or the temple or prayer or, or God, his name at all, or supposedly vindictive spirit of Ezra. In fact, the reality is... Um, Esther is nowhere. The name Esther doesn't come up in the in the Bible anywhere other than this book. Never referenced. Um, and the thank you, Isaiah. The the LXX, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and the Vulgate, the Latin version, which comes from the LXX. So really, the LXX, the Septuagint, added about five chapters of prayers and 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 you know other things to sort of and they, they 
you know, there's no historical basis for it in the in the Hebrew manuscripts that we've found. Um, but you know, clearly people have wrestled with this for a long time. She's she's breaking the law in a sense by, uh, you know, ma- marrying a pagan. Um, in fact, we talked about the. It's the only Old Testament book not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Y'all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 40s, where they found the oldest manuscripts we now have. Every at least a portion of every Old Testament book, other than Esther, was found there. Again, never quoted. It, the Eastern Church. So you'll if you if we ever study church history in here, there was a split between the Western and Eastern Church. The Eastern Church did not rejected it until the fourth century. No church fathers wrote commentaries on it and rarely comment on it at all. Uh, first commentary devoted to it other than Jewish. Again, there's lots of Jewish writings about it. The first Christian commentary devoted to it is in the ninth century. But in the Cairo Graniza, which is another find, uh, there are more fragments of it than any book outside the Torah. It was accepted by the Western Church early on, and I already mentioned the Feast of Purim. So it's this sort of, you know, for us, just a fabulous book, a story that we can all tell, that we all know well, but it also has, you know, some low regard and some extremely high regard. Now, I do want to, uh, I want to talk about the handout now that I gave to you. Now, the, this is another example where we can all benefit from the book of Esther. We all can love and know the book of Esther. We can get value from reading the book of Esther without seeing this. But this is amazing. This is an amazing piece of literature, and um, it is helpful in understanding the meaning of it. Now, what I'm going to show you here, we've talked about different Hebrew literary devices. We talked about... um, you know, I didn't think twice about David going and printing off 20 of these copies and handing them out, even though they're all going to eventually end up in the trash. That's, I mean, again, we'll, we'll look at it, we'll learn from them, but they'll, they'll either be filed away or they're thrown away. They didn't have that benefit. You know, they, writing was not easy, and they, they didn't have, you know, big screens to show uh, their, make their points with bold and italic. So they used other devices, and we've talked about that. We talked about, when we were talking about kings, we talked about the, the, the macro-syntactical particle. It was essentially like, uh, once upon a time, or 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 um, what's the other one? Once upon a time, or they lived happily ever after. Um, they use another tool called chiasms, and I know we've talked about them before, but not everybody has been here when we've talked about them. So I'm going to start before our, we talk about it applied to the Book of Esther. I'm just going to give three examples, three very small examples of chiasm or chiasm. If you have the slides printed out, or if you're looking at the slides yourself, you might see on this next slide a big C. That's because of a font issue that we had in sending it out. But chi, it's the Greek letter that looks like an X, and you might hear Christos is, uh, have y'all seen Ichthus? You know, the fishes on Ichthus is Jesus Christ, uh, Ichthus, help me. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. Yes, Ik, Ik is Jesus, Jesus, uh, the Chi is the Christos, the Theta is Theos, the U is the U, the Upsilon is the Huias, the Sun, and then I guess uh, the Sigma is Soter, which would be Savior. So anyways, I say, why was I saying that? Oh, because this is the, <laughs> this is the, the key, the letter key is from, is Christos, and it has that K sound. 
and that's why I guess it's the font issue, it became a C in what we sent out. But it looks like an X, and the reason why they call this literary device a chiasm from this letter is because uh, it's, the, it's a device, it's a story where, or it's a, a storytelling device where you, you start with something, then you go to something, then you go to something, maybe you go, and then you come back, and you hit those same points on the way back. And it's a very common literary device and very important for interpreting and understanding the Hebrew Scriptures because a lot of times the end pieces or some way that the contrast changes or most of the time the centerpiece is the, is the thing that you pay attention to. Now let me just give you some very small examples where it's not really helpful with interpretation, but it's helpful to at least explain what a chiasm is. So here's a verse in the New Testament uh, of Jesus saying, the last shall be first and the first last. Now in English, we would write it just that way. In English, word order matters. We can't flip around word orders, but you know, not every language is like that. In some languages, the ending of the word tells you how it's being used in the sentence. So it doesn't matter where you put it, and you might put one word up front to emphasize it, or you might order them different ways, and you can still get the meaning because the form of the word tells you how it's being used. In English, that would never work. If we said, the last shall be first, the last first, you know, we'd be like, what, what, what are you saying? I don't understand that, right? Because, but that's how this is written. The last shall be first. Oh, I said that wrong in my example. Okay, let me back up so I'm being clear because that wasn't clear. In English, it just so happens here that it works because of the way it's said. In English, that's why I started with this example, even though I've now fuddled it up. Just go back an, a minute and pretend I never said anything else. <laughs> the last shall be first, the first last. This is an example where even in English we see this. The last shall be first, the first last. So it doesn't help us with an interpretation in any way. I'm just trying to illustrate what uh, that looks like where you say, hey, you have the last, you have the first, you have the first, you have the last. Okay, now let me get to my second example. This is from the Hebrew Scriptures from the first verse of Psalm 19. This is where... It wouldn't make any sense if we were to do it in English. It says, it says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, if we were to say it in English as it's written in Hebrew, it's the heavens are telling of the glory of God, the work of his hands is declaring their expanse, which is backwards, again, because we put our subject first and then our verb and then our object. That's just the way we talk. If we said it that way, we would think it would be the work of his hands that's declaring their expanse. But in Hebrew, they have you know, endings on words, and they change words so that you know how they're being used. And so this is what that looks like in Hebrew. It's the heavens are telling, heavens are telling of the glory of God. The work of his hands, which is the object, is declaring their expanse. So their expanse is declaring, again, that doesn't help us a lot in interpretation necessarily, but it's an example of how uh, they would write in order to show that same pattern. One more example, and then we'll get to cases where it does help interpret, where it does make a difference. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is another example like the first one, which even in English it kind of makes sense because we can put by man first. Whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall, be, shall his blood be shed. Again, you might say, hey, this is much ado about nothing. It isn't much ado about nothing. 
It's much to do because you'll have entire books. The book of Isaiah is laid out this way. You'll have uh, multiple books that are structured and patterned in this way. And the book of Esther, as much as we love it and can read it without any knowledge of this, without ever having heard of this before and we can benefit, it is laid out as a chiasm with a centerpiece in it that's very important. Now, this is not because I read this and figured this out. I'm repeating to you what other people have studied and learned and, and, and just sharing it with you. This is from this article by a gentleman named Gordon Johnston, and this is, you know, if you want to read more, this is the name of the article and where I got it from. But if you'll look at your handout now, you'll see that that's how the book itself is structured. And uh, you will begin to see that corresponding scenes, again, if you kind of you go in to the middle and then you come back out, you'll see that things repeat. I mean, just look at the, you know, just let's start together, and I'm just going to look at the top and bottom and kind of come together. So you have the beginning of how great Ahasuerus is, and here's how many satraps he has, and his kingdom goes from, I don't remember, I think it's India to Ethiopia, and, you know, his, his greatness, and that's how the book ends, but it's talking not about Ahasuerus, it's talking about Mordecai. Then you have this big banquet where the Jewishness of, uh, of Esther, as I think it was Kenneth said, you know, is, is hidden and not shared. At the end, you have another big festival, right, where it's all about the openness and all about the exaltation of the Jewish people. Mordecai hears about a plot, right, and the plot is foiled. Again, that's where you have the, the, the plot to exterminate the Jewish people is foiled. All right, so go down one. Haman, the archenemy of the Jews, plots to destroy the Jews on the 13th day of the month, Adar. Rather, the Jews are victorious and destroy their enemies on the 13th day of Adar. And, and I don't want to, I'm not going to go through all of these, but you just see how it goes in and then they're reversed, same sort of things. And, and that's, again, where sometimes you'll hear people say, I mean, the Bible's, a, it's messed up. It's just a high, like things are repeated. Why, what's this deal, Esther having two banquets? Like, what? I don't understand that. Well, the reality is that's part of the structure, and I'm not even saying that the author made that up. I'm saying that God has orchestrated things that they, I don't know how God does this, but he's orchestrated things so that even history sometimes things uh, do that. I, I, I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade to be able to understand how people, why Esther asked for two, and yet it works with the book, but you'll see that even, you know, the fact that there's two banquets and uh, the connections there. The main point for saying all this, more than anything, is because it is helpful for the interpretation of the book. It's helpful to understand what's the point of the book and why is God not mentioned? Because here you see the little star in the middle. All of it hinges, and you could probably get this even without ever seeing this. You can feel just reading it the turning point at that time. We can feel, uh, I, I, I'm even, I remember we were, um, we were at a volleyball tournament yesterday, and right at the same time, one of the other players was asking me, what do I do for a living? I said, hey, I work for Chick-fil-A. And, and then right at the same time, Kyla and Annalise were with me, right at the same time, this person in the tent next to us was talking about, they said, hey, I work for Chick-fil-A. And you know, we were like, whoa, like, I mean, just that we would be next to each other, and, and, and have that conversation at the exact same time. And us, it was really fascinating, you know, to see that come together. And I think also we, we really appreciate, uh, I'm thinking about uh, the, Gideon, 
I want you to sit on the end of the row here, okay? We, we really appreciate, uh, yeah, just go back with Annalise, please. Thank you. We really appreciate, uh, all, the writers are on strike right now, right? We really appreciate writers who can tie things together like that, right? I mean, it's, we all like that kind of thing, and, and God is no different. He has orchestrated things in ways that, you know, turn of events, and, you know, we, ah, it's amazing, that reversal that just happened. You know, it's just really, and, and I think we can see that and appreciate it uh, even without knowing this. But this clearly shows, as we put it on paper, and that may be why I like it, I'm more of an engineering mind, you know, I like to see it on paper and say, oh, that's cool how they all correspond. And we see that the turning point is very much, even the way Kathleen said it earlier, I don't know if you caught how she said it, I don't, even, I don't know if I'll say it exactly right, but she said that's when he was given a sleepless night, or she said it some way like that. Is that right? And that's exactly right. Like if you if you read the book, it's very clear that the history of this entire people hinged on a sleepless night of the most powerful person in the entire world. Right? I mean, this is he owns again. The book starts. He he is ruler from India to Ethiopia. We've not seen kingdoms like that ever before. Greece and Rome will be massive kingdoms as well. But to that point, the largest kingdom we've ever seen, this, uh, this plot to destroy God's people, which you would never know it from just reading this book. It wouldn't seem like they were a different people, but you know from reading through the Holy Scriptures, this is God's special people. All of that hinges on a night of lack of sleep and him turning. And again, we, la- we should never use, you know, that's not how you make decisions. You don't open the Bible and, and point, you know, but God can do that. God can, can take... Uh, as the Proverbs say, the king's heart, and turn it any way he wants. And this book shows that at the grandest scale, God is at work doing that. And we talked last week about Ezra and Nehemiah. And remember how we compared God and Ezra and Nehemiah with God in Exodus? Right? What were the two body parts that were the comparisons? His arm and his hand, right? In Exodus, it was his arm, his mighty arm, that did things like open seas and destroy firstborn and bring plagues and, you know, do miracles in the wilderness. But not so with Ezra and Nehemiah, but his hand was upon them. He was giving people ideas. He was convincing kings to do things. He was, and we talked about how in the writings, that was very important for the Jewish people post-exile because that was how that was going to be their experience. And you read about it in the Psalms. I don't, we don't see your miracles anymore. How long, God? Well, here it is. God is still at work. God is still at work during those times. And I, and I said last week, it's helpful for us because as we read in the New Testament during the times of the apostles, we see amazing miracles everywhere. Not that, I mean, they would go into towns and there'd be nobody sick left because they would bring them all and their shadows would cast on them. But we don't have that quite, quite that same experience today. And so it's helpful for us to not give up hope, to know God is still providentially watching. We hear things about people getting prison sentences. And, uh, but God has got his hand and he's working uh, on that. And so these are important books for us as well. In fact, as I think about this, and we're, we're done with this, uh, but as I, as I think about that and I think about the purpose statement of Esther, a lot of people will say, in fact, nine out of ten people, uh, especially in Jewish circles, would say, hey, the reason Esther is there is to explain why we celebrate Purim today, or Purim. And I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't, that's not a, that wouldn't be, to me, that doesn't rise to the purpose of something being preserved as it has for the years that it has. But to me, as I think about 
I would ask you the question, this book essentially tells the same story as Ezra and Nehemiah, right? It shows God's providential hand working with the post-exilic community so that chronicles don't give up, don't, don't cry, sweat, right? Get to work. But why do we need Esther if we have Ezra and Nehemiah? What could you see as a difference between those two, even though they're both telling about God's providential hand? That's exactly right. That's what I think as well. Like you think about the difference in the cast of characters. I mean, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, very different. These are people that are with the program. These are coming back. These are sons of David. Um, who is Mordecai a son of? Who's he a relative of? Do you remember? Kish of Benjamin. Do you remember that name at all? Saul. He's from. He's related to Saul. Right? This is not Ezra, the chief priest. This is not Zerubbabel, the son of David. Right? This is a, this is a relative of Saul. And, and yet, what is God doing to the, this descendants of Saul who are in Susa marrying kings opposed to the Torah? What is God, does he care about them? Is he going to providentially care for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. God cares about Israel, whether they are the ones coming back, trying to do it, and those people need to know God's hand is with them, even though it's not going to be the, what they hope right away. He also cares about that dispersed Jewish population that might not even be looking back. So, my attempt at a purpose statement, God's love for Israel extends even to those Jews who are not actively seeking the restoration of his kingdom on earth, and thus he will providentially care for them in accord with his covenant promises made to the nation as a whole. That's right. That's, yeah, I, I think so. I think God's, uh, God's, the writings, again, as the way I view them, is it's, it's God's handbook for the post-exilic community as they wait for the final restoration that God will be true to them in and will preserve them through and to. Um, and that has lasted a lot longer like, I mean, if you think about, and we'll talk about the place of Esther in the canon in just a second, but if you think about, that was, Moses talked, Moses had their whole history written early on. He talked about that they were going to go into exile, and they would come and be restored, they'd be given a new heart, and, you know, if you're Zerubbabel, if you're Ezra, if you're Nehemiah, you are, that's the next thing on the calendar, and it's the last thing on the calendar. So when you go back, your expectation is that that is going to happen. What comes right in between Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, right before Chronicles, is the book of Daniel, believe it or not. Daniel's not in their prophetic section. It's in their writings. And what's Daniel's point? It's going to be a lot longer. It's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be 770. And, and there's this one kind of year kind of hanging off the side. Well, what's the, what's the deal with that? And Frank will teach that shortly enough. But that's right, it's going to be a long time. And so, but the reality is whether it's 1947, whether it's, you know, the 500s, God is still provident, and everywhere in between, and everywhere since then, God is providentially caring for the Jewish people because when he set his love on them, he's not fickle. He set his love on them, he will love them, even though they don't deserve it. They're still in unbelief, but he will care for them. So I do think... It applies, and and people uh, talk about how it's a hard book to read for people who've been through the Holocaust because 
that's, uh, you know, they didn't see the same deliverance there. Now, God still is caring for them everywhere. He's used that to bring them back. But there are hard times they, they go through as well uh, where you don't see uh, necessarily or you question or it's harder to see his providential hand even in that. That's right. Yeah, that will be even worse in the future. Major themes. The providence of God, obviously, it's the, it underpins that purpose that I just shared. Uh, it is emphasized by the structure of the book. It's also emphasized, or implied, I should say. It's emphasized by the structure. It's very clear that in the same way Ruth happened upon the field of Boaz, is the way the author of Ruth says it, and that same way the king happened to read this, it happened to be just the right time. You know, uh, no, no. But it's also implied in 414 with, with Mordecai's statement that, like, it's, if you don't do it, God will, he will, he will make it happen one way or another. And again, it extends to the bedroom of the world's greatest ruler, and we referenced that verse in Proverbs just a second ago. But again, even when there's an opportunity to tie it to God, that God, as Ezra Nehemiah does, um, you know, Ezra Nehemiah, multiple times, we read, I don't know, 10 verses last time, attributes, God put it into the heart. God did this, God did this. So in this case, it's a little different because, again, this community is a little different. You know, they um, will talk when we get into Ezekiel. Uh, the book of Ezekiel says that God went into exile with them, you know, and, but you don't see it. Like, when, what, did, what did it look like when God was with them in the land? It looked like Shekinah glory, right, in the, in the temple. But he's with them in the exile. Ezekiel makes that exact point. It's just not easy to see. In the same way, you could argue, that Jesus, God was among us in Jesus, but it wasn't really easy to see a lot of times. He looked human. He looked, uh, it, was, it was this hiddenness of God theme. It's emphasized by the content of the book. And again, you may not see it, but God's working. And so there may be purpose that he's not calling out God and that it uh, helps to help with this theme. Other themes, Israel versus Am Amalek. We just talked about how Mordecai was descended from, well, at least a family member of Kish, which was Saul's tribe, Saul's family. And Haman was not a Persian. He was an Agagite. He was descended from Agag, who was, do you remember Agag? He was the one that Samuel killed because hacked to pieces because uh, Saul didn't. So there's, uh, this is a major theme here. Uh, Mordecai the Jew versus Haman the Agagite. We talked about how he's either descended from Saul or he's at least of the family member. Um, we, talked, we just referenced uh, Saul's disobedience in exterminating them, especially their king Agag. And by not exterminating them here, we now have uh, Haman. This is... Uh, let me read to you a couple verses here in Esther 9. Do you remember, um, there were two things Saul did wrong there. Do you remember, one was he didn't kill Agag. What was the other thing he did that, that Samuel even referenced when he, he took their stuff, right? He's like, I obeyed the Lord. And what did Samuel say? Yeah, I, I doesn't sound like it. I hear sheep. And listen to these verses in, in Esther 9. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamaditha. Okay, verse 6. Saul, it, Saul. In Susa, the capital of the Jews, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Then it lists the ten sons of Haman. 
the son of, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Or verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, the rest of the Jews who were out in the provinces, they killed 75,000, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So it's very clear the author is referencing uh, Saul in that case. Amalek was the the group, you'll recall, when they were going out of Egypt that kind of came to their rear trail and started picking off the slowest and the weak and the ones that didn't have protection and that Moses then we went and fought them and he raised his hands and they were they defeated them and, they, and God said, I swear I'm no peace for Amalek after that. So this is the same. It goes all the way back beyond Saul back to their exodus from Egypt. He's the son of Esau. Uh, we talked about what I, that just now, and, and Balaam mentions it in his oracle. And then he's commanded, excuse me, Moses commands the nation uh, to not forget that. So this is a theme that goes all the way back, but is very important in Esther. Okay, um, reversal, especially when you have a, a structure like that where you're comparing and contrasting. Um, you know, we've already talked about so many things were reversed. I mean, the instrument of death that was created for Mordecai was used. It's like, what's this, the phrase that, I think it's in the Proverbs, you know, the, you, you push a bolt, boulder up a hill to try to, and it's going to come back on you. I, I'm not saying that well, but you know, I think you know what I'm talking about. Reversal is a major theme here. Here's some examples. Again, this is also, uh, you know, the kind of things that uh, help you when you're trying to determine the structure, just to see... Uh, the, the very clear reversal of events. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagai, advanced him in rank, gave him precedence over all his other nobles, and the king's officials of the court bowed down and did obedience to, obedience to Haman, for so the king had commanded. And then Mordecai came to occupy a position of great power. His fame was spreading, growing more and more powerful, second in rank, preeminent among the Jews. Or earlier the king takes his signet ring off, gives it to Haman, here he takes his signet ring off so that Mordecai's decree can go out with the king's authority. Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and then later in the story, Mordecai goes out of the king in royal clothes. So this idea of reversal is very important. And again, if you think about the theme and you think about why it's written, it's very important for the Jewish exilic community to recognize that while they may you know, be scattered and they may not have a home and they may... Um, you know, be like wanderers. They don't really have a place, and obviously that's changed, and God's doing something. Uh, but um, there's going to be a reversal. I think even about the the war uh, that was, um, you know, all of the war in our, our this past millennium. Uh, they, excuse me, in the past century, the the Arab nations gathered around. They were going to take, and the the exact reverse happened. They were able to gain ground from their enemies. But I don't know. I don't know what God is doing right now, but he's doing something, and this theme of reversal is helpful for Jews who might wonder, who might write, read a psalm and say, yeah, where are the prophets, and why are we, uh, don't appear to be a special nation in any way. Uh, another theme, uh, Andre and I were talking about this, even Denise was talking about this earlier, uh, Purim, 
It's it's not the normal word, the normal Hebrew word for lots, you know, casting of lots. It's the only time it's ever used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, so Purim, Im is uh, the, the plural. Pure means lot, Purim, so lots. And you'll recall that when Haman uh, was trying to figure out his plan in the first month, uh, pure, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. So he's casting lots to determine when are we going to do this, when are we going to do this, and Adar is chosen. And then later, in verse 26, they called these days Purim after the days of pure, and because of the instructions in the letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them. And what is this holiday? Denise was talking about earlier. I had heard this uh, analogy as well. People, you know, it's kind of like Halloween almost. I mean, they dress up, but they're, it's a giving of gifts. Not a, not, you don't dress up to get them. You, you dress up, you celebrate, you have fun, and then you give, especially to the poor, and you give to those. Uh, verse 22, it says, It was a month which turned from them from sorrow to gladness, another reversal, from mourning to a holiday. They made of them feast days and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So uh, because our calendars are not the same, they, they will get off at times. So it was most recently that, when I, that I taught this, it, uh, it was going to be in March, uh, and that was in 2019 that I taught this. It was in March, and so at that time it was, because um, I think we were teaching in the over the winter and it was coming in the months to come, but I don't know this year. So it's, it's always a little bit before the... Um... May 12th this year. Oh, it just disappeared. No, it's March this year too. March 6th and 7th it was. So, um, and, what, and what I'll share in just a second is the canonical position of Esther. And it's one of the five scrolls, the megalote they're called. And each of those is read at a major... Festival. So Song of Songs is read during Passover. And um, it'll be, you know, obviously during Purim is when Esther is read for that. We talked about this. This is, an, um, this is called a gragger, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. Elsie's doing the, the hand motion. But you, you spin it around, it makes a lot of noise. I think they have them at, like, soccer games. I don't know if any of you have seen them. But... Uh, you know, there's I don't I won't be able to find the verse. I should have found it, but somewhere it talks about the name of of Haman being, you know, not remembered or I don't know if anybody knows where that is. I can't remember. But during the holiday, when they read Esther as part of it, any time his name's coming up, they mock and jeer and make this noise. You know, uh, it's it's kind of a fun tradition as they're reading it. You know, and they. Again, celebrated in every family, province, city for generations. And there you go, February, March. I should have just gone forward, Andre. So I guess it, I guess I'm not, I, I need to study up on my calendaring. I don't, I, I would have expected that to over time historically shift, but maybe I don't understand that right. But March of this year, March 6th and 7th of this year. And again, lot gives the idea of chances, which again, we know God controls even those. The lot's casting a lot, but every decision is from Yahweh. Oh, and 
if you go back to 3.7, again, these were not Jews that were back in the land. This is just, you, you might not notice this if you're just reading, but in the first month, the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, pure, the lot, that is the lot, was cast before Haman. So it's, that's a reference to the Passover. That is the month. Nisan is the month when they would be celebrating Passover again. I don't, there's no indication that Mordecai and Esther celebrated it. Maybe they did. I don't know. But it's certainly not called out in the letter. But during Passover, during the most holy time of the Jewish calendar, is when they started deciding when to destroy the Jews. So uh, God was taking notice. Frank. Perhaps. So there's, uh, I don't have a great answer on that either. I, I always tell you when I don't, but I would say there's one, um, let me read to you a section. There's a there's question uh, about Esther and about the, uh, the age and the timing. It says in, um, where does it introduce Mordecai? Here it is. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5. There was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, and then it gives his lineage, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah. Now, who do you think that, at the beginning of verse 6, when it says, who had been taken into exile, who is that, do you think? There was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem. That's what it sounds like, right? If Mordecai was taken into exile, that was the not the 586, that was in 597, I believe, the ones who were exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah. Right, we're 150 years later now. That's putting Mordecai at about 150 years old at this point. And Esther's probably his niece. Again, there's some question about that too. So she's probably not winning. I'm sorry. I should be careful how I say this, but I think I already let it out, so it's probably too late. She's probably not winning any beauty contests at that point, you know. I don't know. She's probably over 100 at that point. So it's more likely uh, that who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem would have been uh, Jair, the son of Jair, or one of those in his lineage. Let me read it to you uh, if I can find it. According... So we'll, yes, that's right. So, but let me start with start with Mordecai. Mordecai's age is a problem for many scholars. According to many readings of Esther two five through six, Mordecai was exiled to Babylon with King Jehoiakim in five ninety seven. If this were he, then in four seventy four, when he became prime minister, he would have been one hundred twenty two years older than however he was, however old he was when he was exiled. Since Esther was his cousin, he says here. This would have made her very old as well. The solution is rather simple, however. It's to read the antecedent of the pronoun who as Kish, Mordecai's grandfather, not Mordecai himself. Kish, then Mordecai, was the one taken into captivity. So I don't, I don't know, but there's, some, there's those questions about chronology that are hard that I'm, I'm, I, I know I think I committed even to having an Who asked that question? You did? Oh, okay. I'm sorry that I don't have a question. That'll just... Yeah, because there is a Mordecai in the genealogical list that, that goes back, and I did not research it, Kathleen. I'm very sorry. That will give me all the reason to stay in touch with you uh, after. So, 
Okay, let's talk about the location of Esther in the canon. So it's 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 likely that the the person that had been taken into captivity was not Mordecai because he would have been too old. It would have been he said, Kish the Benjamite, who had been taken into exile with the captives. Yeah. So the people and I, I I did. There's not a lot of research on it, so I I will say that I did Google even though I didn't open books. And a lot of the people that would want to say that would say he'd come back. Yes, yeah. But I don't, to me, you're filling a lot of gaps at that point, a lot of white space, to me as well. So to me, the better question is the one that he addressed, which is, hey, how, how did he get exiled and still is doing all this, you know, over a century later? Okay, location of Esther in the canon. Again, we talked about how English has really good ordering, it's chronological for the most part, again, because Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, well, in particular because Ezra has both Zerubbabel and Ezra, it's impossible unless you stick Esther in the middle of it to stay chronological because the beginning, the first six chapters of Ezra are before Esther, then Esther, then Ezra 7 and on, and Nehemiah is beyond. So it's roughly a chronological. In Hebrew, as I reference, it's in the writings. It's in particular the Megaloth, which is the five scrolls, and there you have them listed, Song of Songs, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther, and each of those are read at a major Jewish festival each year, whether Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, a remembrance of the destruction of Jerusalem, or Purim. And again, really, and a lot of good reasons where it's placed. We already referenced one, talking about the providential hand of God, uh, but, you know, think about the connection with Daniel as well. This is Daniel is another, to a large degree, book set in exile where you have somebody rising to prominence in both his case, Babylonian and Persian governments. So... Song of Songs for Passover. Yeah. I bet there is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've never actually read those directly. I just read people who've read them, so and I've not read much of that. So I'm at a loss for why. I thought it was strange too. This one makes total sense. Lamentations makes total sense. The other ones not so much. But I bet there's a reason. I'm thinking they must take some of the songs as allegorical between God and So, yep, before. So Daniel was exiled himself. So even that, even that discussion we just had about whether Mordecai, that would apply to Daniel. Daniel was exiled at that time, and then he came to reign under Nebuchadnezzar. Well, you know, he was involved with Nebuchadnezzar where he wouldn't eat the food, and then came to reign under Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Nabonidus, in particular his right-hand man, Belshazzar. I always get him and Daniel's name mixed up, and I probably just did. Uh, it came to reign under him. And then he reigned with Cyrus, the king of Persia. He reigned under Persia at that point. But then Cyrus was, you know, had Cambyses, Darius, and then all the way down to Hashuer. So she was, they might have overlapped. I mean, 
you know, Daniel was a statesman for a long time, probably, you know, must have lived a good long life, and we don't know her age, uh, but more likely he was before and then she followed. So good resources on Esther. This is a book that I can't, I mean, it's just a great book for all the, especially the um, post-exilic, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these, this is a real, Chronicles, it's just an introduction to the Old Testament historical books. It's a series. There's four of them, and this one's on the historical books. So, you know, Samuel, Kings, etc., Joshua, Judges, I think even. But I, I like it for uh, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, the stuff post-exilic. I think he's really helpful. That article is amazing to me. Again, I, I just it's neat to me to see it structured that way and to have that explained. That was a really uh, enjoyable article for me, and that's a commentary that I think is really good on Esther. Next week, Frank will be back and uh, teaching on Job. Okay. It's a very common, you know, device. Again, you don't have to be looking for it. You don't, it's good that, I mean, I don't, I don't see it when I read. I mean, I just, it's teachers that have done it. So it's good that you, we, you know, that you have teachers that help you do it, help you see it. Um, but it's a, a very common device that is really helpful in interpretation. But don't feel like it's this hidden thing. Oh, why don't I, you know, it's not that. We, the Bible is beneficial as it is reading it, Second Timothy 3.15 says, From childhood you are able to know the Holy Scriptures which make you wise unto salvation. So a child can read them and benefit from them. But it's good. They're there and it's real, so it's good for us to see them. But I don't want us to think that it's a, you know, the Bible's a mysterious book. or you know, It's not. The Bible's given so that infants... That word from childhood is the same word of John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb when Mary greets her. So, I mean, we're talking... The Bible says, hey, young children can understand and become wise unto salvation through the scriptures. So I think they're really cool. I never, I think I told you the story in, in middle school. I hated English. I hated grammar. It seemed like it was all made up. I think I thought they were just playing with me. Like, you told me like two sentences ago that was the object. Like, I couldn't understand it. I didn't. And now I just think it's really neat. It's really neat how, you know, it's not, it's not easy to make yourself known and explain. And, and so it's neat to see how God has done that. Um, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for your love on display for the people of Israel, and not because they did anything to deserve it. They were the least of the nations. They were not righteous. It wasn't for their own merits that you chose them. You chose them because you chose them. You chose them because you set your love on them. You chose them because you loved the patriarchs, and you chose Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, you don't repent of that. You don't turn from that. You love the people, even through covenant breaking after covenant breaking after covenant breaking, showing mercy, showing mercy, and ultimately uh, showing holiness and showing judgment. Yet even in that, uh, there is a mercy. There's a going into exile with your people. There's a uh, using sleepless nights or any number of things uh, to change king's mind or to put ideas in people's minds. You continue to care for your people even when they don't deserve it. And a real patience in doing that. You've waited a long time, even through unbelief, as was mentioned today, that still exists. And you still have the same care. You're still working. And clearly you're doing things now that uh, are uh, continuing to show that, that we'll look back on when we understand it better and see just how you cared, continue to care. Help us to have love like that that's committed, that's um, 
faithful, that's at cost even to ourselves, and uh, help us to to be like you in that. We're not naturally like that. Uh, we have flesh, we have desires, we want the things that we want. We're not wired uh, to do that. But your spirit produces love in us, and so we, we don't want to... Uh, do nothing. We know we need to pray and read and seek that and try, uh, but Father, it, it will be you who produces that in us. So we ask that you would do that so that we don't fail each other and so that we don't fail you or bring shame to your name that you've called us in. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for uh, your provision and your care for the people of Israel and help us to love the way that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.